Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Morning. Thank you. Um, it's good to be here this morning, as always. Um, if you don't know me, my name's Chris. I'm the ordinand here, which means that I'm training to be clergy for my sins. Um, and uh, Ben and Hanau, the usual leaders, they're away this week, and I think there's about 40 of our number at New Wine. Hanau texts this morning saying she's missing you all. I think they're quite envious because the weather's horrendous. So, um, yeah, we get to be blessed there. Um, as you can tell by Sarah's tan, we've just come back from holiday. I'm ginger, I don't tan, I hide under umbrellas. But um, we've just come back from a wonderful week in Croatia where we got to do absolutely nothing. It's my perfect holiday. Sarah's more adventurous than I am. But I like to just lay there, do nothing, read books. Actually, I'm that lazy this year. I didn't even read a book. I started downloading them as an audible book. Um, and holidays are really important to Sarah and I. We don't spend money on much, but we would spend money on holidays. And there's a, I've got a couple of stories for you. One is from a couple of years ago, where we were about to go on one of these super lazy holidays. Like, I like an all-inclusive, because I don't even want to think about what I eat. I don't want to think about how I get to the hotel. I don't want to think about how much money I don't really have to spend, because it's all paid for. So we just booked a holiday for two weeks to go away. And we woke up, I think we were going on the Wednesday, we woke up on the Friday morning, and Sarah goes, oh, there's something weird. I've been bitten on my ankle. And I'm thinking, that's weird, because normally I'm the one who gets bitten. You know there's normally someone who always gets bitten, and it will be me. Um, well, it was Sarah. And anyway, I go to work. It's my last day at work, and I'm really looking forward to having just a couple of weeks off. And I get a phone call from Sarah in the afternoon, and she was like, I think, I think there's something wrong. So her bites had, were actually a rash and start to spread across her body. But I'm an optimist, so I'm like, oh, you'll be fine, it'll be okay. Um, and just take some antihistamines, I'm sure you'll be fine. And then we thought, oh, we'd had dinner with some friends of ours the night before, this amazing couple from Mexico, and they cooked this thing called mole. Has anyone ever had mole? It's got like 30 different ingredients in it. So we're like, she's obviously reacted to one of these ingredients. Um, I get home and the rash is now spread throughout her whole body and um, it's looking pretty bad. So we go to the hospital in Dulwich and they don't really know what's wrong but they're like, it looks like you've got some reaction to something. Take these antihistamines. If it gets worse tomorrow, go to the pharmacy, get some antibiotics. I'm sure you'll be fine. Wake up the next day and it's even worse. Um, Sarah, you know they say don't Google pictures of illnesses? Well, Sarah looks like one of those pictures you shouldn't see on the internet. And it got really, really bad. So we'd gone to the pharmacy and got these antibiotics. I'm thinking, they just need time to kick in. I'm still going on holiday. It's all going to be okay. Um, come the evening, and it, we knew it was bad. It had got, basically gone into Sarah's eyes. And um, we, I ring up 111, and they're like, a doctor will ring you back within a couple of hours. I waited up till 3 a.m., no return call. About 6 a.m., we woke up, and Sarah's really bad now. So we go to a walk-in um, doctor surgery, and as soon as they see her, they're like, you need to get to hospital straight away. And I'm, th I'm like, do I need a note like, to let them know it's serious? And they're like, no, 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 they just need to take a look at her, and they'll know it's serious. We get to the hospital, and... Um, you know with the A&E, it's not always that quick, if you've ever been. Um, the, again, they saw Sarah, they rushed her through. I don't know why I'm smiling, this is a horrible story. But um, they rush her through the um, A&E, and they're all looking at her, and they have no idea what's wrong. Um, they have no idea what's wrong, so much so 
they, they quarantined Sarah, so she's got her own room now, and this rash is horrendous. It's just, it's consumed her whole being. But I don't know about you, I'm not used to these sort of things. So I was thinking, we're in hospital now, it's fine. Actually, we've got a lot of lovely um, first responders in our, in our congregation now. So I have a lot of trust in doctors and nurses. And I'm thinking, it's all fine, we're there now, they've got her. Um, they put Sarah in quarantine and they start hooking her up to lots of uh, antibiotics and, and feeds and things like that. Um, and you know it's bad when all the consultants in the hospital decide to come and see her because they've never seen it before. So they're all coming to see Sarah, but again, I'm thinking, I think by now, I, might, I think I might not be going on holiday, but I've still got a bit of faith. I've still got faith that miracles can happen and that it could, it, you know, we could go. Um, I go home that night and I'm in bits because I'm just like, God, my wife is in real trouble. Like, she's in real trouble. Um, I won't bore you with the medical jargon, but basically there's three forms of this thing that Sarah had. It's called erythema multiforma, which someone had told me means multiple forms of rashes. Um, and there's minor, which means antibiotics, you'll be fine. Major, which means get to hospital. And then Stephen Johnson syndrome, which is, it can be fatal. It's really, really serious. Um, but I come back in the morning, and my faith in the doctors is quite high. I'm thinking, it'll all be fine now. We're in hospital. And I turn up in the morning, and Sarah's veins are going black. They're going purple. And this is signs of Stephen Johnson syndrome. And I'm just like, God, we need a miracle. Like, we need an actual miracle. This is going really, really wrong. So I am fortunate enough to um, have friends who are Christians. So I text everybody I could possibly think of. And I text a friend of mine who's a pastor of a church in America. And he was actually in the UK at the time. And so I text him and I was like, Chris, like, I'd never normally do this. This guy is so busy. Like, I don't want to bother busy people. I'm British, so we don't want to bother people. But I was like, Chris, we need, I need a miracle. My wife is dying. Like, it's gone from I'm going on holiday to this is the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. Um, and then 10 minutes later, I get a friend send me a video. Uh, Joel, can you run the video? Is there any sound? And first we say no Lord, we break this power over her, over her, her body right now in Jesus' name. Lord, we cancel this disease. We cancel the assignment of the devil over this family. Two thousand people praying for Sarah. What was amazing is that we know that, at that, that basically that, those sort of hours, that hour and an hour after, the disease stopped spreading. Um, and so what was incredible for me was just the fact that I think they took every test you could think of, all the bloods, the biopsies, the saliva, things, everything. They took everything. They scanned her, um, and then they were trying to figure out what was wrong. Um, the, next, the next day, Sarah's on the mend a bit. Um, again, love nurses. We had one nurse who was a bit brash. She just waltzes in, and she's like, we, I think we were saying, oh, she's getting better. Maybe she'll be out by the end of the week. And this nurse is like, if she gets out, I mean, you don't hear that, do you? If she gets out, it won't be for six weeks. She's got Stephen Johnson syndrome. And we're like, whoa, no one's told us that yet. Like, you can't just come in and do that. Um, but uh, bless her, she was probably had a hard day. Um, but what was incredible was that in the midst of this battle, 
And it was the worst, genuinely, it's one of the worst things I've ever been through. I still had faith that God was going to turn up. And despite everything, Sarah was out within a week. And I just wanted to share that because it's a, I'm going to be talking on faith today. And you know, sometimes you're in like the worst season, but you have like a bit of faith. Um, I've got one more quick story to tell you, uh, to illustrate faith again. And um, I used to work for the UN. I was there for 13 years on and off. And there was one time I had to fly to Burundi to do some work. And, um, and I had to transit through Nairobi. And I remember, I don't know why, I obviously wasn't switched on when I checked in my luggage. And on the plane, I, I remember the check-in and they said, we've checked you through to Nairobi. And I'm like, no, I'm going to Burundi. Like, I need to transit through. And then I, I had an hour transit. And I'm thinking in my head, so I've got to get through immigration. And if any of you have been to Nairobi before, you need to go and buy a visa. You need to get it stamped. You need to get through. That probably takes about an hour. And then you need to get your luggage. And then you need to check it all back in, which is at least another hour, right? Probably two. So I'm thinking, I've got, it's a three-hour process. And I've got an hour. And the flight is late taken off. So it's now down to about 40 minutes. And I just was on the plane, and I was like, God, again, I, uh, I need a miracle. I need some help here, because if not, I'm going to be stranded in the middle of Nairobi in the middle of the night. And I, I felt God say these words, you're going to make it just. And I was like, all right, I'll take that. So I, the plane lands. You know what always happens when you're in a rush? People take their sweet time getting off the flight. You want to kill them but you're full of faith, so you don't. So, so then I, I, I go down the steps, and then there's these guys in busy jackets just in front, and I speak to one of them, and I was like, this is my situation, and he's just looking at me like, he's like there's no way, there's absolutely no way you're going to make this. Um, and then, but bless him, he went off and he found someone else. They came and got me, and then they were like, just come with us. So they took me, and then they went off into a side room for a while, and this is the, this is the miracle for me. They come and got me, and they illegally smuggled me through immigration, which is brilliant. And then another miracle, my bag is the first off of the carousel. So we get it. They, again, illegal, illegally smuggle me back. They have no idea who I am. They, they smuggle me back through immigration. I've probably now got about 15 minutes max before my flight departs. And you know, obviously, they close the doors early. Um, and they said, we're going to get a buggy to drive you to your plane. I'm thinking, this is brilliant. And um, the buggy takes ages to turn up because God is testing my faith. Um, Anyway, the buggy turns up and drives, and then they get me so far, and they go, um, that's your plane over there. You need to run. So I'm running across the tarmac with my bag, and I think I had a shirt on. I was, like, really hot and humid, um, and, I, and I can see them just about to close the door to the plane. I get to the steps, get up there, and they're like, come on, come on, come on, we're leaving. And they close the door, and I sit down on my seat, covered in sweat, and I just heard God say, I told you it would be just and it was just one of these things of like, it was an absolute miracle. I should have never made that flight. So, as I said, I'm talking on faith. When I hear about a problem, I have a tendency to jump into let's pray mode. I'm like, I have a problem and I need God to come and get involved in this problem. Um, and my automatic reaction is we need to fight and we need to fight in prayer. Hence, if I try not to text people too much about prayer requests, which is always good to do, by the way. You should always reach out. But um, if there's a problem, I will text people and say, we need to pray. Like, that's my default position is we need to pray. 2 Corinthians 10 says that we do not fight as the world fights. Our weapons are not physical. Our weapon is the prayer of faith. 
This passage also instructs us to take hold of every thought and make those thoughts submit to the perspective of Jesus, who won every battle that ever needs to be fought. And in this submission, I am to trust him with the problems I face. Why, why is this my response? Well, for me, I have kind of four main cornerstones of faith. The first cornerstone, if you will, like imagine it's a cornerstone there, is that God is good. Everything for me has to be balanced on God is good. The second one is nothing is impossible with God. The third one, let's put it over there, is when Jesus died on the cross, he won the ultimate victory and he took power and control away from the devil and he gave it to us. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So we go in the power and authority of Jesus. He has all authority, not just some. Um, this is often the case in our house. I will go food shopping. Usually it's a lot of junk food. But Sarah will come back and go, have you bought, have you bought crisps? Yes. Have you eaten all of the crisps? If I say yes to that, that means there's none left for Sarah. Jesus has all authority. There's none left for the enemy. And it's important that we know that Jesus won everything at Calvary. Lastly, my fourth cornerstone, let's put it over there, is essentially that you are more significant than you could ever imagine. And I believe that we are here to make a difference. I believe that we're here to change the world. And I know a long time in church, people didn't like saying this because they would say, you know, but this thing hasn't happened yet or I haven't changed the world. But for me, if you're not dead, you're not done. So I was talking to Lynn before the service and I was like, Lynn, how long have you been praying for this church? And she's like, we were praying 20, at least, at least 20 years. There was just a few people praying that this church would be full of families and of life. And they're now seeing answers to their prayer. God has plans for us. And it doesn't matter who we are, how old we are, or what circumstance we're in. For me, we cannot lower our theology to that of our experience. We have to elevate our experience to that of our theology. The prayer of faith can pull the reality of God's world, of the kingdom of God, into our world. When the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, one of the things he instructed them to pray for was that life here would be on earth as it is in heaven. The words faith and trust appear over 600 times throughout scripture. Faith can be defined as trust or confidence in a person or something. It is abundantly clear that as Christians, we've, we've got to have faith, in the words of George Michael. The writer of Hebrews states this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith has its anchor in the unseen dimension. Now before you think this is weird, I've got a very simple question for you. Do you believe in quantum physics? Shall I make it easier? What is quantum physics? Well, one YouTube video says that quantum physics is arguably the most important scientific theory out there because it's helped us to develop computers, LED screens, com um, camera, digital cameras, lasers, nuclear power plants, things like that. Quantum physics is the part of, our, of physics which describes the very smallest things in the universe molecules, subatomic particles, and atoms, and things like that. And things in this micro-universe 
don't act exactly like they do up here in our normal realm. Which is fascinating because me and you and everything around us is made up of quantum physics. And it's actually how the universe works. Now in quantum physics, there are symbols and there are types which, record, which we use to record and work with this theory. A quantum wave isn't a physical thing. It's not like a sound or a water wave. It's an abstract mathematical description and a label to help us to understand and to comprehend something that is impossible to see. So no one has ever seen a quantum wave. No one's ever heard one. No one's ever tasted one. No one's ever felt one. Yet that doesn't stop us using the theory of quantum physics to significantly shape our lives today. Just because we can't see it does not mean it is not real. Now rest assured, this is not a science talk. To start with, I actually don't know that much about science, but I do know about faith. Ephesians says that it is by grace we are saved through faith. And unlike other religions, this does not come from ourselves or our actions. It is a gift from God. Salvation comes from faith and belief that Christ died as the Son of God so that we could be reunited with a good Father in heaven. We can be forgiven for our sins and that Jesus died from the grave, giving us life again. But faith wasn't just intended to get us into this family. It's actually the nature and the culture of life in this family. And although throughout Scripture we see that Sorry, I'll start again. Throughout Scripture, we see that faith is contrasted with the limitations of sight. 2 Corinthians 5 says that we live by faith, not by sight. So what does it mean to live by faith and not by sight? It means to live by our stances, not our circumstances. I live from the stance that God is good, that he's faithful to what he has said to me, that when I am faced with an impossible situation, like not being able to make my connecting flight in Kenya, my circumstances, my rationale, the airline, even the law, would tell me I would never make that flight. But my stance is that God is a good father, and when I cry out to him in my need, he will meet me in my need, and he will be with me. When the doctors can't work out what's killing my wife, and we see her veins turning purple, and the consultants come to see her because they don't know what's going on, and the nurse tells us that Sarah is not going to be out of hospital if she gets out within six weeks. When my circumstances are screaming fear and doubt at me, my stance responds, not today. My God can do abundantly more than I could ever imagine. My God paid the price for healing, to set people free, and to change the destiny of those who are sick and dying and oppressed. My stance is that he is good, and my belief trumps my fear. I'm not saying it was easy. There was a lot of wrestling, a lot of tears. It was an incredible, difficult time. But for those of you who know your Old Testament, and if you don't, you, know, you can read it, um, there's a story of a man named Jacob, and Jacob wrestles with a man who we believe was Jesus. Um, and during this wrestle, it apparently went on all night, Jacob said to the man, I will not go unless you bless me. And we read, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched Jacob's hip so that it was wrenched out of his socket, and Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. When we're touched by Jesus, when we encounter the living God, it's supposed to change the way we walk. 
Now, I'm not saying we should walk with a limp. And as a Christian living in the new covenant, it basically means that when I'm touched by God, my life should look positively different than it did before. Living from our stances and our beliefs is not easy. But we are supposed to wrestle with these things. We're supposed to wrestle with what we don't understand in prayer, in community, throughout worship, in the scriptures. And when the day breaks, and it will, it will change the way we walk. Because we live and we walk by faith, not by sight. See, faith sees differently. I personally hate it when people say, just be realistic. My response is like, you're realistic or God's realistic because I want to see what is possible with God, not necessarily with what you're saying. Faith sees and brings God's kingdom into focus. I also hate the phrase, don't get your hopes up. I'm like, well, why not? Romans 15, 13 says that God is the God of all hope. And if I have the God of all hope living in me, shouldn't my posture be one of hope? Don't get your hopes up, you'll make that flight. Don't get your hopes out, your wife will be at a hospital within a week. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but Chris, I've been praying for years and I've not seen my miracle. I've not seen God come through. I've not heard him. Bad stuff happens and it is painful. But I'm also not saying all of my prayers get answered. We've prayed for um, close family and have, we lost a nephew I know I'd cry, I always do. Um, I've never prayed and fasted and worshipped so much in my entire life. And it's devastating to lose people, to feel like your prayers go unheard or there's something wrong with you and your way you're praying. I get it, I really do. And it does take time to process our pain and our disappointment with God. And when we, but the thing is, when we lost uh, our nephew, through pain and through tears. I remember getting on my knees and saying, God, I'll never be offended at what you don't do. I refuse to be offended for, you for what won't happen. Because his goodness is not dependent on our circumstances. He is good because he is good. The truth is, is that we live in a time uh, which theologians call uh, the kingdom now, not yet, which means that we have some of it, we get to see some of it, but not necessarily the fullness of heaven. We experience healing and we experience death. We see goodness and we see brokenness. But as a Christian, it is our responsibility to subdue the chaos around us and in the darkness to turn up the light. I've seen enough of God's power and his faithfulness, and his love, to live from a place of hopefulness, and to refuse to take offense at what hasn't happened. The amazing thing is, is when we have little faith, we can ask him to help us, to give us more. And it's important to know that he's never mad at you for these things. He just wants to come with you as a good father, and help to train you, and show you how we can live lives full of faith. So what is stopping us? What was stopping me for many, many years? I think it was fear. The fear of appearing to live in denial. Worrying that other people would think I was naive or stupid or uneducated 
or just weird if I said I had faith for an impossible situation. And I had to ask myself, why is someone else's opinion of me more important than willing to trust in God? I remember visiting Ben and Hanau when he was training in Bristol many years ago. And we were talking about church life. And um, if you've heard any of my other talks, you'll realize I have come from a very broken place. And so I was talking about, you know, I'm going to church and things, but I would still continually live as if I wasn't. So it could be that, you know, I'd go out and, and get drunk. And I remember Ben saying, the thing is, Chris, we're supposed to be different. Because I'd always say, I do the whole, you know, I just want people to know that, you can be normal and be a Christian. So I'm going to go off and do these things so they know you can do these things. And, um, and he was just like, Chris, as Christians, we're followers of Christ. We look different. We are different. The truth is we don't have to be perfect to be followers of Christ. None of us are. We're all broken. We all carry things. However, with God in the business of fixing broken things, when something's being fixed or being healed, it looks different from when it was completely broken. As I said, we're supposed to be mini-Jesuses. Repentance is spoken about a lot in the church, and I think we misunderstand it. We think that it means to, to tell everybody what, or to tell God all of our sins, and it doesn't. Repentance simply means to change the way you think, to stop following my own path and my own way of doing things and start to follow after Jesus. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's as though Jesus said, change the way you think because I brought my world with me. And if you don't change your perspective on reality, you will live in the midst of a superior reality that you will never be able to draw from. And to encourage our capacity to see this kingdom, Jesus gives a very simple instruction. Seek first the kingdom of God. This theme is continued by Paul in Colossians 3, where he says, set your, things, uh, set your mind on things above. And he also, Paul also tells us in 2 Corinthians, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. The Bible is telling us to turn our attention away from what we, uh, to turn our attention on what we cannot see in order to change what we can see. Am I telling you to have blind faith? Absolutely not. Faith itself carries ideas of belief, trust, and commitment, and is only therefore as robust as the evidence for it. Faith in the Christian sense is not blind, and I actually don't know a serious Christian who thinks it is. Indeed, as I read it, blind faith in things like idols and the imagination, the Bible calls it delusional gods, and it's condemned throughout Scripture. My faith in Jesus is not delusional. It's rational and it's evidence-based. Part of the evidence is objective. Some of it's based on science. Some of it's based on history. Some of it's subjected based on my experience. I believe that Jesus raised from the dead and having looked at the evidence, and so have a lot of extremely clever people, determined that on the evidence presented, Jesus is real, and I should put my trust in him. In a debate with Dr. John Lennox, Richard Dawkins said, evidence is all important, and we only need to use the word faith 
when there isn't any evidence. Dr. John Lennox rubs his hands, leans back in his chair, and with a wry smile emerging on his face, looks at Dawkins and says, Richard, I assume you have faith in your wife. Is there any evidence for that? Dawkins fires back, yes, there's plenty. Um, yes, okay. And he realizes that faith is not the absence of evidence. Does that make sense? Faith is not the absence of evidence. We can have faith in people because of evidence. Faith is not blind and is not in place of evidence. Faith is neither intellectual nor anti-intellectual. Faith is born of the Spirit of God in the hearts of humanity. And as I said in Hebrews, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith is both substance and evidence. And through the prayer of faith, we're able to pull God's reality into this one. So how do I live with faith? How do I live a life of faith? The person of the Holy Spirit lives in us. A few weeks ago, we talked about how we are the temples, the new temple of God. Beforehand, he was in buildings. Now he lives in us. We are that place where God dwells. And knowing that God lives in me should be an absolute game changer. When I pray, personally, I mean, this is just my thing, but you can do what you want. When I pray, I put a hand on someone. It helps me also to know that God is in me and also is putting a hand on that person as well. But sometimes we're presented with problems or with people who need prayer, and I often don't feel that equipped to deal with it. But it is the responsibility of us as believers that in the secret place with God to get on our knees and contend in prayer until there is a breakthrough. Proverbs 25, 2 says, It is God's privilege to conceal things, and it is the privilege of kings and queens to search them out. We are called in Scripture a royal priesthood. So you are kings and queens, whether you like it or not. That's what we are. And it says God's... It's the, what did I say? <laughs> it's the privilege of God to conceal a matter, and it's the privilege for us to search it out. God conceals things, and he doesn't do it because he's mean. Have any of you ever set up an Easter egg hunt for a kid? Like, you hide... When they're little, you hide it literally in front of them, don't you, on a table. And then the next year, you hide it maybe behind a cushion. And the year after that, it gets a bit harder. But it's never because you're being mean. It's because it's part of it. It's part of family life. It's to be with kids when they're figuring things out, when they're searching out answers and clues. You don't just give it to them. And it's supposed to be fun. Sometimes we need to search for things. But that's okay. You're not being tested. It's just God teaching us how to do this life. So if we understand everything that's going on in our Christian lives, we have an inferior Christian life. We're supposed to be in a relationship with God where we can wrestle with these things. I heard um, someone say, God is fairly smart. But he's not intimidated by our questions. We can't trap him with thoughts or ideas. He's pretty secure in who he is. In fact, Scripture tells us to seek and to pursue understanding and wisdom. The issue is, is many of us hold God hostage to a question and will not obey until he answers. I'll have faith when you give me the job I want, give me the relationship that I want, give me the healing that I need. There's certain things that we almost try and condition with God. 
you can fill in the blanks for where that could be for you. And I came to a place where I realized I don't have the right to do that. My responsibility is to surrender my heart to him and to obey. To yield myself to the will of God and in the process of faith and trust is where we gain understanding. Because scripture tells us that faith comes from hearing. In a healthy relationship, there is constant loving dialogue. And in a healthy relationship, there is a great deal of listening. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing. Please note, it doesn't say faith comes from having heard. I need a constant listening heart. It's, in the, it's actually written in the present tense. It needs to be ready and willing to listen to God. And again, referring back to the Old Testament, if any of you know the story of Abraham, if he'd have listened to what God had said, he would have killed his son. But he had to listen to what he was saying to make sure that there was life going forward. The nature of faith implies a relationship with God that is current. And as I said, good relationships are constant, they are loving, and you're in contact with them all the time. I, I remember when Sarah and I were getting married, and we were compiling the guest list. That great joy of arguing who can and cannot come to your wedding. And once we got over the 200 people mark, um, we had to ask some serious questions. And I was like, um, Sarah, who are actually your friends? And she was like, everyone. I was like, well, who? We invited a lot of people from our church. And I was like, who do you see not on a Sunday? Like, whose phone number do you actually have in your phone? And can I just say, you're never going to get to know everyone in church. So that's not like, do that. It's just the reality of when you're in bigger churches, you can't get to know everyone. My point is, if my, God, if my relationship with God echoed that, and I only had a relationship with her on a Sunday, or even worse, imagine I only ate food on a Sunday, I'd be malnourished. Jesus wants us to spend time with him, not just corporately here on Sunday, which is really important, but on our own in a secret place every day. It is in this place that I hear his voice. And in the hearing, we receive faith. In the secret place with God is where I contend for breakthrough. And we get to know the character of God. We get to know that he is good, and that he is faithful, and that he is loving. Do you remember being a child and asking your parents? They'd say something, and you'd say, do you promise? Do you remember asking that? And when your, when, when your parents said, yes, I promise, my faith in their response increased. And in relationships with God, we get to say, do you promise? The promises of God are sprinkled throughout scripture. And many of them are still waiting for us to believe in them. Waiting for somebody to stumble over a word like, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I imagine all of heaven awaits for a, some believer to find a passage like this. And instead of falling into the temptation of putting that off into another time period or for someone else to go after, to adopt it as our own and bring it before God and say, is it possible that this word may be fulfilled in my lifetime? See, it's not been given to us to distribute scriptures into seasons. It's been given to us to see what's possible with Jesus in our day. You are a miracle waiting to happen. You are a thing this very city is crying out for. The single mum who goes to bed at night weeping, what she really needs is you filled with Jesus. 
the businessman who is locked up in his world and so disappointed with success. He's crying out and he's crying out for you. They all need me and you to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And they're longing for us to introduce us to him. Welcome to the normal Christian life. I'm done. If you stand.